You're listening to Undetermined, Deaths, Disappearances, and Mysteries. I'm your host, Dr. N. Before we get into it, I have to say that this case has haunted me since I first heard about it. Many of the details are so bothersome, and the fact that no one has been able to identify this man or even definitively explain his death after nearly 72 years is baffling. This case is definitely one that keeps me up at night. Pretty much every detail is undetermined. His identity, cause of death, even manner of death. So buckle up, folks. This is the case of the Somerton Man. On the morning of December 1st, 1948, the body of an unidentified man was found on Somerton Beach near Adelaide in South Australia. There were a couple of witnesses who had seen the man the night earlier in the same position, but he had appeared to be alive. Disoriented, in their opinion drunk, but alive nonetheless. They noted it was odd to see a man so nicely dressed on the beach. A nice suit, very polished shoes. The next morning, people noticed that he was not alive anymore. He was in the same position as the night before, slumped against the seawall with the cigarette he had been attempting to smoke lying on his collar. The initial examination put the time of death to be no earlier than 2 a.m. that morning, and speculated the likely cause of death as heart failure, with an added note of suspected poisoning. The full postmortem examination revealed very small pupils an enlarged spleen, about three times the normal size, and a liver distended with congested blood. The last meal was identified as a pasty, which is a pastry originating from Cornwall in the UK. For those of you outside the UK, it's pretty similar to an empanada, typically filled with meat, with a short crust outer pastry. Semicircular in shape, with crimped and curved edges. There was also blood in his stomach, again, suggesting poisoning. You shouldn't be surprised to hear that no evidence of any known poison was found in his blood or any of his other organs, and no definitive cause of death was found. The practical solution was that an incredibly rare type of poison was used that decomposed soon after death, so no trace was left to detect. The problem with this theory is that it's terrifying. The only poisons that have those properties are so dangerous that an expert witness wouldn't identify them in open court. The two possibilities he did identify for the record were digitalis and strophanthin. He believed it was strophanthin, a rare glycoside that is derived from the seeds of certain African plants, known to be used by a Somali tribe to poison their arrows. Dozens of people were brought into the morgue to help identify the man found on Somerton Beach. His photo was published in multiple newspapers, and his full set of fingerprints were taken and circulated throughout the entire English-speaking world. There were no matches, and no one ever formally recognized or identified the body. He was essentially a ghost. The man had few belongings with him, a train ticket, that was used from Adelaide to Somerton Beach, a cigarette container with a different brand of cigarettes inside, interestingly enough, more expensive ones were inside, matches, chewing gum, 
and two combs. There were no identifying papers or documents. No ID, no wallet, not even cash. His clothing even had the tags meticulously cut out. Now, this wasn't necessarily unusual at the time. I think people tend to tie it to the conspiracy that he was trying to hide his identity, but it was a pretty common practice to cut tags out of clothing if you bought it used. By January of the following year, nearly every lead had dried up. This is the point where they went looking for abandoned belongings that may contain more clues about the Somerton man. This led them to the train station, where they were shown a brown suitcase that had been left in the cloakroom on November 30th, the day before the Somerton man died. Unfortunately, there were no identifying documents in this suitcase either, but there was evidence that it belonged to the Somerton man. All the tags had been taken out of the clothing, save for a few pieces. There was also thread matching a thread used to repair the trousers he had been wearing. There were three items of clothing with the tags still attached, and they had a name on them that read Keen or T. Keen, but police suspected they'd been left on because it wasn't actually the man's name, and that lead died out pretty soon after they looked into it. The suitcase also contained a coat with American stitching on it, as well as a table knife and a stencil kit for cargo. The stitching part is really interesting because these days we have mass-produced items of clothing and we don't typically recognize things as unfamiliar in terms of stitching, but they were able to identify that it was an American stitching and it wasn't common in Australia at the time. So they were thinking maybe this man was from America or he had traveled to America during the war. Essentially at this point, police were desperate. There's nothing left behind by this man that led to any credible clue of his identity. They had another pathologist examine the body and his possessions in the spring after the body was found. This pathologist found a hard-to-find pocket inside the waistband of the man's trousers. Inside this tiny pocket was a tiny rolled-up piece of paper printed with the words Tamam Shud, meaning the end or the finish. It's a Persian phrase meaning, it is ended, which is fitting for the state the man was found in. Some believe that this was evidence that the Somerton man had died by suicide. It comes from a popular book of poetry at the time, the Rubiat of Omar Khayyam. It was written in the 12th century and was popular in Australia during the war. The poem itself is about living life to the fullest and having no regrets when it ends. There were many editions of this book, but the interesting part is that this scrap of paper was eventually traced to a rare edition from New Zealand. Eight months after the start of the investigation, police discovered the origin of the piece of the Rubiat in the Somerton man's possession. A man came forward to the police saying he had parked his car near the beach the day the Somerton man died. He was in town visiting his brother-in-law, who found the book lying on the rear floor of the car. The two never discussed that it didn't belong to either of them, they just assumed it belonged to the other, and the book was kept in the glove box until it was brought to the police. When police had published information in the newspaper about their quest to find the source of the paper, the man took a closer look at the copy that had been found in his car. Police discovered the same piece of paper had been torn out of the final page. 
it appeared they'd found their match. In the book was a telephone number written on the back cover belonging to a nursing student who wanted to remain anonymous. I will note here that she has been identified, but out of respect for her wishes to not be identified while she was alive, I will not be sharing her name or the names of her family. The phone number was unlisted, but they soon traced it to this local nursing student, and she admitted to giving a copy of the Rubiat to a man she knew during the war, claiming his name was Alfred Boxel. Following up on this lead, though, the police found Boxel was very much alive and couldn't have been the Somerton man. He actually still had his copy of the Rubiat that this nursing student had written him a note in. The woman, upon seeing the death mask of the Somerton man, nearly fainted, but claimed she did not know him. From that point on, she refused to cooperate with police, and she died in 2007, taking any knowledge of the Somerton man's identity with her. Researchers believe this woman knew the Somerton man and actually fathered his child. The Somerton man had a rare genetic disorder called hypodontia, which affects the lateral incisor teeth and is present in only 2% of the population. He also had another identifying feature where his upper ear hollow was larger than the lower, one that you only find in 1-2% of the population. A photo of the child that researchers believe belonged to the unidentified woman and the Somerton man showed that he has both of these traits as well. The chances of this are not terribly high, pointing to the likelihood that the child is related to the Somerton man. Unfortunately, this possible descendant died in 2009. Along with the telephone number, they also found impressions of other letters that seemingly made no sense. There were writings on the page as well that were more confusing than informative. Many have assumed this was a cipher of sorts, but no one has been able to crack the code. It's been studied by some of the best code crackers and engineers around the globe. One man believes part of the code matches Morse code letters found in the World War II radio operator's manual. He also believes there is micro-writing hidden within the letters of the first five lines of code that refer to the de Havilland Venom, a British post-war aircraft. There's been speculation that the Somerton man was a spy of some sort, possibly even a double agent, who was murdered for his role as a spy. This was the beginning of the Cold War. Tensions were high, and it kind of makes sense why this theory gained traction. The same man also examined the copy of the Rubiat that the nursing student gave to Alfred Boxel, and he claims there's also micro-writing in the message she wrote on the cover of that copy of the book. This micro-writing theory is highly questioned and dismissed by a lot of people and remains controversial at best. It implies that the nursing student was also potentially a spy. This is an interesting twist that on the surface may appear too conspiracy theory-laden to hold water. However, the family of this nursing student gave an interview on the show 60 Minutes, where they claimed to believe she was a Russian spy and may have had a hand in the murder of the Somerton man, who they also believe was a Russian spy. Her family claims she told them she knew the identity of the Somerton man but would never share it, 
and that she told her children the mystery of the Somerton man was only known to, quote, a level higher than the police force. The cipher and death by possible rare poison seemed to corroborate this idea that the Somerton man was a spy, though that could just be our confirmation bias getting in the way. The idea that there was a massive governmental cover-up to effectively erase the Somerton man's existence from human consciousness seems on its surface a bit far-fetched. Though the use of a rare and deadly poison is quite odd for someone to use on themselves or for just your run-of-the-mill poisoning. On top of that, the fact that all of his identification was either missing or never recovered points to him either not wanting to be identified or someone else not wanting him to be identified. In that case, if no one was ever going to look for him, why didn't they just hide the body? If there was a conspiracy to murder the Somerton man because he was a spy, why leave him on display? Why do it in such a public area? And how someone could have access to this poison without there being any financial trace certainly raises a lot more questions than we have answers for. And if you thought this was a case without a peculiar love story entwined, you thought wrong. Everything I've read about this relationship is worded in a very serendipitous kind of way, almost like it was fate. It starts with one professor's obsession with the case and ends with him marrying a woman who he believes might be a descendant of the Somerton Man. Professor Derek Abbott spent a decade researching the Somerton Man mystery and came to the conclusion that he had found a viable link and a descendant in Rachel Egan. Eleven years ago, in 2009, Abbott investigated the rare genetic traits of the Somerton Man those that I discussed earlier of his teeth and his ears. Abbott ran with this information and decided to track the descendants of the nursing student's son, who he believed was the son of the Somerton man and who had also died in 2009. The chance that this child and the Somerton man would share both of these rare genetic traits and not be related is between 1 in 10,000 and 1 in 20,000. And this is what brought Abbott to Rachel Egan, who he believed was this child's granddaughter. It turns out, Egan had been adopted and only found out when she was at college. She was relieved to find out because she had never really felt truly connected with her family. Interestingly enough, she had always had a passion for ballet, which she shared with no one else in her family. The coroner had actually made a note about the Somerton man's legs, that they were very well defined and resembled those of either a long-distance runner or possibly a ballet dancer. Egan decided to contact her biological mother after she learned she was adopted and found out her parents had both been ballet dancers and had met at the Australian Ballet School. Abbott persuaded Egan to meet him at a nice restaurant in Brisbane, where he asked to look at her teeth and her ears. She did not share either genetic anomaly with the Somerton man, but Abbott also asked for her DNA. 
Apparently, as the story goes, the two fell in love over that dinner, and by the next night, they decided to get married. No judgment, but that's incredibly fast, and I don't blame Egan's mom for being suspicious. It unfortunately ruined the relationship between Egan and her mom, and Egan is aware in interviews that Abbott was after her DNA all along, but that didn't really bother her. The two went on to have three children of their own, and they're still very happily married. Maybe Abbott had some morbid fantasy where he inserted himself into the legacy of the Somerton man by marrying his supposed granddaughter and fathering his supposed great-grandchildren. Or maybe we shouldn't judge their haste union so harshly. He's actually been the biggest proponent in getting answers and for years has been the biggest proponent in getting the body exhumed and raising the funds to do so. He may have had ulterior motives going into the meeting with Egan, but he made those abundantly clear and maybe unexpectedly found true love in the process of pursuing his investigation. But that's not the mystery we're here to discuss. So what happened to the Somerton man? Was he trying to connect with an old lover? Did he die by suicide? Was he murdered? Why was he wearing a full suit on the beach? Was he a spy? Or was he just another ordinary man? One of the questions that haunts me and makes this case so heartbreaking is, is it really possible to live a full life and have no one remember it? That is a valid fear of a lot of people. Will my memory live on? And I think it's a reason why a lot of people are so afraid to die. Will my memory be erased apart from my body and the possessions I leave behind? It's terribly lonely to think that when we die, that's it. The only reason we know the Summerton Man existed at all was because of what he left behind. This ghost-like quality of his existence is so intriguing because it is both unbelievable, but also inevitable. Had he had a family member claim him or come forward, there probably never would have been worldwide attention given to this case. We have far more sophisticated technology now that could help uncover new clues in the death of the Somerton man. In fact, we may find some answers in the near future in terms of solidifying the link between the Somerton man and the nursing student and her descendants. In 2019, the South Australian State Attorney General granted conditional approval for exhumation of the Somerton man's body, with proviso that taxpayers don't foot the bill, which at a costly $20,000 posed quite a barrier to getting any answers. Abbott is leading that charge in raising the money for the exhumation, but the pandemic has halted a lot of these plans. Maybe one day soon we will see the exhumation of the Somerton Man and finally find some answers to so many questions that have been raised over the years. Until then, the case of the Somerton Man remains undetermined. Thank you for listening to episode two. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. Please let me know your thoughts on the case through Instagram at undeterminedpod or by emailing me at undeterminedpod at gmail.com. 
If you have your own indeterminate story, I'd love to share it on the podcast. Please send in your stories to the email linked in the episode notes. If you'd like to support this podcast, please subscribe, download episodes, and leave a review. And as always, stay curious. All episode content was researched, written, and produced by me, Dr. N. All music you hear on this podcast was written and produced by me, Dr. N.